Hi everyone, welcome back to the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael, and I want to thank you again as always for tuning into the show. I truly appreciate your support. This week we shift our focus back to a more personal story, the story of the Venezuelan diaspora. While I myself am not a member of the diaspora, my accent is a dead giveaway from my American upbringing, several of my listeners are among the many Venezuelans who left the country and moved abroad to either Europe or North America, where they a unique challenge in telling their story and explaining what's happening in our country. They're often lectured by their own peers or even by professors on college campuses on how these young Venezuelans are wrong about the reality of their own country. It's problematic because it undermines their own personal experiences and it's that unique challenge of sharing them with the world that I want to focus on in today's episode. I'm joined in this segment by Maria Fernanda Bello, an undergraduate student living in Virginia who serves as the Director of Outreach for Young Americans Against Socialism, a college organization launched to educate young Americans on the realities of socialism in both a historical and contemporary context. Like many young students growing up in Venezuela, Maria was an activist fighting against the Maduro dictatorship. She experienced firsthand the brutal suppression of protests and constant state of fear under which the overwhelming majority of Venezuelans are forced to live today. The experiences Maria shares in our conversation are among the many that Venezuelans abroad can relate to. And I hope you'll enjoy listening to the stories that she wants to share with you all today on this week's episode of the State of Venezuela podcast featuring Maria Fernanda Bello. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today I have with me a undergraduate student in Virginia. She is also the director of coalition at the Young Americans Against Socialism, an organization whose mission it is to preserve a free, fair, and prosperous United States of America for generations to come by equipping millennials and Gen Z with the intellectual ammunition they need to be able to reject the lies of the socialist left that is from their mission statement. And most importantly, she is from Venezuela. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Miss Maria Fernanda Bello. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get started and really dive in, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell a little bit about your background, where you come from, and your upbringing before you actually got here to the United States? So I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left Venezuela when I was only 17 due to socialism. But when I was in Venezuela, I was doing campaigns against the government. And so I knew that I couldn't stay there because if I kept doing these campaigns against the government, I knew I was going to get arrested. So when I graduated from high school and a month later, I came to the United States. My dad is an American Venezuelan. So thankfully, I am an American Venezuelan as well. So it was easier for me to come to the United States. So I started like, you know, going to school and doing all of those things that normal people do, <laughs> things that we cannot do in, in, in Venezuela. You know, it's, it's just so hard to grow up there and, you know, have so many friends that they either choose to go to school or be able to work just so they can have food on their table. So it, it was kind of hard growing up there. Um, moving here was hard as well because I had to leave my family and I was all by myself. 
But, you know, one of the things that I'm so thankful about the United States is that I have freedom, something that I didn't have in Venezuela. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed. A lot of um, a lot of younger Venezuelans who come to the United States, that seems to be one of the redeeming qualities that they see stand out. So with that, Maria, I wanted to ask you, what can you tell the listeners is one of the biggest misconceptions that you see Americans having about Venezuela and the situation that it's living in today? So I think one of the things that they think it will never happen here, you know, that United States will never be like Venezuela. And, you know, when Chavez got in the power in 1999, there is this interview that someone else was doing to him. And he said, we will never be like Cuba. We know Cuba is a dictatorship. We know Cuba is a communist country, but we will never be like them. And look at us. I, I don't know. We're probably worse than Cuba right now. And a lot of Mexicans we are. Yes, we can definitely go into that a little bit later, but we absolutely are. But yeah, please continue. Yeah. So I, I think it's one of the things that they don't even know. They don't understand what is actually happening in Venezuela. One of the things that really makes me mad about them is that they say, no, Venezuela is not a socialist country. What's going on in Venezuela is because it's capitalism and stuff like that. And like, no, you live in capitalism right now. Are you able to work and put food on your table? Yes, you are. In Venezuela, it doesn't matter how many hours a week you work, your income will be $5 a month. How can you feed your family with $5 a month? So one of the things about our generation is that they think it will never happen here. That's what we thought in Venezuela. It will never happen there. And look at us. In, in just 10 years, actually, throughout Chavez's presidency, he expropriated over 1,200 companies. So this idea that there's a certain percentage of a majority owned by the private sector is just ridiculous because we're talking about mm -hmm. every single sector being expropriated thousands of businesses in order for the government to be solely responsible for the means of production. So going back on a lighter note, tell me about a time that you remember living in Venezuela, just to give the audience an idea of what things were like before Chavez came into power so that we can really stress this idea that things were mm -hmm. not nearly as bad before Chavez got into power. Right. Um, so when Chavez got in power in 1999, I was only like two years old, but I will talk to my grandparents and they will tell me that they had this president. Um, he was kind of like a dictator, but things were not as bad as it is right now. They will tell me, like, for example, like no one will bother you. No one was allowed to come to your house and, you know, like rob you or steal stuff from you. Like that didn't happen before Chavez. And I know that um, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Carlos Andres Perez, if I'm not mistaken, they were, he was having an interview, and then he says something about if Chavez gets in the power, what's going to happen? It's a dictatorship. It's, Venezuela will become a socialist country, communist country. And no one, you know, no one really pay attention to that. It was him. It was him, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, I'm kind of like, I get confused between, between Carlos Andres Perez and Marco Perez Jimenez because it's kind of like the same last name. So I kind yeah. of like get confused all the time. I'm like, no, wait. So yeah, it was him. He did tell the Venezuelans that if we did choose Chavez, this was going to happen. And it did. And it's actually even worse. Absolutely. And maybe you can go into this a little bit more. Little by little, mm -hmm. as Chavez began to ascend and really infiltrate his ideology through both economic and political institutions, he started to silence the opposition by waging war against the free press. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to maybe any personal experiences or instances where you saw radio stations or channels being uh, taken off the air because of government mandates. 
yeah, RCTV was one. Then I remember in, in Globision, for example, um, whoever spoke against the government, that person was going to get fired. And that happened so many times that you couldn't speak against the government because you will get fired. You will lose your job. So RCTV, he took RCTV from the Venezuelan television and like that, too many other radio stations, like Luis Chatein, for example. I remember he had his show, and then he was so against the government, and then the government took his show, and like him, many other people lost their jobs just because they were speaking against the government. And that's one of the things that the government first do. Um, whoever speaks against them, it's going to either get fired, or as we have seen, all of these students, um, they're on the streets fighting for a better future, fighting for a better education, fighting for a better life, a better country are getting arrested or killed by the government. Yes, on a regular basis, journalists and political activists alike are unfortunately taken away, sometimes in the middle of the night, without a word and without any sort of right to trial, no due process. In fact, you look up any metric by any international outlet and we score among the worst when it comes to not just personal property rights, but also the right to free speech and right to trial. That practically does not exist. They're dissidents yeah. who are members of different political parties, the opposition coalition as a whole, who have spent hundreds of days in jail in horrible conditions, I might add. These aren't regular prisons where I'm not saying in the United States we have it any better. They're not necessarily paradises, but they might as well be relative to the conditions under which Venezuelan dissidents are awaiting trial, a trial that may never come. Yeah, and just so people know that you're not in jail just because you committed, you know, a crime or something like that. It's just because you're going against the government. Just, you know, all of these politicians, students that go against the government, they end up in jail. And these things are like, it, again, it's not like in the United States we have the best places for that. But it's it's a place that you can at least sleep. You know, you have a bed or something like that. In Venezuela, they sleep on the floor. They don't, they don't, I don't even know what they eat, to be honest. If they eat at all. Exactly. Um, my friend was in jail, um, I think it was about two years ago. He spent in, in that horrible place more than I think about 120 days or something like that. And he was facing 15 years in jail just because he's one of these politicians that are going really hard against the government. So my friend ended up leaving the country because, you know, either you leave or either you stay and then something happens to you or, you know, that's a bad thing that you cannot speak against the government because something's going to happen to you or your family. So I know that that's one of the things about me. I, I started speaking up against the government about a year ago. And, you know, sometimes I'm really scared that something's going to happen to my family because they're still in there. So, you know, you have to be really careful about what you do, what you said, and all of these things. But the thing is, if we don't speak up, the same thing that happened in Venezuela is going to happen here. And this is my home. This is my second home. I don't want to lose my home. Yeah. So I wanted to speak a little bit more on that. Now that I know, we know what your mission statement is with uh, YAS, <laughs> I, <laughs> such a popularized term, I would hear it among so many female friends my age who would be like, yeah. <laughs> but in your case, you know, it, it's a little bit different. You guys are on a mission to, I will reiterate the mission statement, preserve a free, fair and prosperous United States of America for generations to come by equipping both millennials and Gen Z with the intellectual ammunition they need to be able to reject the lies of the socialist left. Mm -hmm. So could you speak a little bit more about what 
the problem is you see on campuses as it relates to the misconception of socialist countries abroad and the broader idea that that can never happen here? So one of the things is that the professors are liberals, okay? And these professors will make us read about things like the Communist Manifesto and think that it's okay. It's, you know, the Communist Manifesto is a good thing. Socialism is a good thing. Communism is a good thing. And then you have these kind of students like me. <laughs> I actually, my state is really liberal. And I remember I was in a class, and in political science class, local politics was the name of the class. And then the professor asked us to do an essay talking about a country. So I said, well, I'm going to do Venezuela because that's my country. I know all about it. You know, I know I'm going to get a hundred. That's what I thought. My professor gave me a 70 because he said I could not say those kind of things in that essay. That what I wrote about what's happening in Venezuela is not true. So I told myself, I was like, how isn't that true? If I lived through that, my family is still living there. So professors don't want you to speak up, you know, and, and the rest of my classmates, they were all liberals too. They were like Bernie supporters. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what, how do I escape from this? One of the other things is that they're not letting the conservatives create their chapters, their uh, college of Republicans, for example. They can have a college, I mean, I don't know how they call it, but, you know, the Democrats chapters, I, I don't know how they call themselves, but then they're not letting the Republicans have their own chapters in college. So it's just a whole thing because I, I have had so many of these kids reaching out to me and asking me how how can they do better? How can they actually talk about it? How can they talk about socialism, those things? I told them, I said, look, you need to speak up. They won't do anything to you. And I always tell them in Venezuela, I was always scared because if anything, the government will come after me, will come after my family, they, they will hurt me or something like that. And I was really scared of speaking up over there. But then I told them, I was like, they cannot do anything to you over here. So just do it. I, I have another kid from Yale University. She said, Marie, I think I'm the only one that's a conservative on my college. I told her, no, you might not be. I think you just need to do the first step create something, do a chapter, contact Turning Point, yes, whoever you would like to start a chapter with in your school. And you will see that as soon as you raise your, you, you know, your voice, as soon as you speak up, some other people are going to come. And it might not be 100 kids, but at least if you have 10, 20 that think the same, then you can make a difference. Absolutely. And I think speaking from experience is a really great way to appeal, especially when you're trying to convince people that this isn't some fantasy tale that you've made up from you know the furthest corners of your mm -hmm. mind a lot of these um these details that you're providing based on your own upbringing are not uncommon they're largely consistent with that of of the many exiles from venezuela here in the united states and the fact of the matter is when we talk about venezuela 94 percent of the country right now is living below the poverty line there has been an uptick in Venezuelans seeking asylum. I believe it's gone up 4,000% in the past year alone, and 5.1 million have left in the past five years alone. 5.1 million, that's 1 million shy of Syria. And that's a conflict that has been going on over the past decade by virtue of a civil war. We're not going through a civil war. It's all economic strife, and it's a narco dictatorship. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind me asking, Maria, 
at the time of writing your essay, was any of that included or were those the sorts of facts that your professor was disputing and that resulted in what I would argue is an unfair 70? Right, yeah. Um, I remember, I think I was talking about socialism, how socialism destroyed my country, about how Nicolás Maduro and Chávez destroyed my country, how they promised people free things, all of this, but they didn't never promise them their freedom, how they took things away from people, you know, their lands, business, things like that. Um, I, I even presented the numbers, you know, and he said, no, Maria, that's not how it is. I, I was like, okay, then I guess I am wrong. <laughs> you know, it's just ridiculous that professors don't let you talk about this kind of things. You know, I have so many friends that they're like, you know, Bernie supporters and stuff like that. And they want socialism in America. Say, And these are people that are coming from South America. They should know better about the situation in Venezuela because they're coming from South America. It's kind of an ironic trend too, right? Having people that are emigrating from countries that are experiencing this sort of civil and economic strife, advocating for the exact same policies from which they and their parents fled, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Are there any surprises that you've had, maybe any positive surprises that you have had throughout your tenure, any successes that you've had in maybe changing somebody's mind or surprising them to the point where they start to reconsider socialism? Have you guys come across those sorts of successes thus far? We have. Personally, I have. Um, I have so many people sending me DMs and asking me, hey, I don't know a lot about socialism, but I know you're from Venezuela. I know people say that Venezuela is a socialist country. Could you please tell me what you went through in Venezuela? Could you please tell me your story? And then I tell them, look, this is what socialism is like. This is what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you they're going to give you free things, free college, free healthcare, free anything, but they will never give you freedom. Again, do you rather have free healthcare, which doesn't even work, instead of having your freedom than being able to say whatever you want, being able to buy whatever you want, being able to get out of your house and, and like go out and then you're not scared someone will come after you and rob you or point a gun at your face. Right. And I think it's not only that. Um, I, I'm sure you're aware of this, but COVID as it's ravaging the the world at large, it has now made its way into Venezuela. Oh, and yes. it is a country that is in no way, shape or form equipped to handle a pandemic of such a scale because the healthcare system at large has collapsed entirely. Mm -hmm. So number one, let me just ask on a more personal note, um, how is your family doing over there and how are they combating the pandemic as we speak? Well, um, they are okay. They, my grandparents are higher risk, you know, but um, they are just at home locked down <laughs> they don't go out anywhere um my aunt she has some businesses she she has to open them because if you don't work you don't eat in venezuela that's how bad it is um but uh, talking about that healthcare and those kind of things my grandma had a stroke about two years ago and then you know she used to work uh for the government like pdvsa which is the petroleum company she used to work for them and she has been retired for more than 20 years, I believe. So probably a um, few years after Chavez got in the power. But she had a stroke. And then I remember her telling me that um, she was in a private hospital. And they told her, well, you can go home because we need the bed. And she couldn't find her medicines. And if she did find them, then they were so expensive. 
So just imagine that you're paying to be in a private hospital, right? And then the doctor tells you, well, I know you're not well enough, but we need the bed and we need you to go. So what if something happens to you when you're at home? Yeah, that's terrible. And I'm really, really happy to hear that they're okay. But in the long run, they're sort of the lucky ones, right? Because yeah. most of these, uh, most average Venezuelans, really the vast majority, again, 94% of them are below the poverty line. So mm-hmm. those who are in that percentile have to make the tough choice of being admitted to a public hospital where 35% of the ICUs don't work. of the x-ray units are busted, 94% of the MRI and tomography equipment are broken, more than half of these hospitals have no supplies like gloves, face masks, soap, security goggles, disposable gloves, scalpels, syringes, um, and most of them, yeah, 43%, that's almost half, have no water service or it's entirely faulty, Mm -hmm. and over a third of them have no running water at all and power generators that don't work properly. So Yeah, well, it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but one of my friends, um, I was talking to one of my friends in Venezuela, and then he tells me he has to take a shower at 2 a.m. because that's the time the power comes back to his house. I mean, the, the water, that's the time he has water. So just imagine to be like, be up all the way to 2 a.m. or just wake up at 2 a.m. just so you can take a shower. Funny you mentioned the electricity problem because we haven't even gotten started on that one. Oh, because oh my that's one of the core services that was seized. In 2007, the government acquired this Electricidad de Caracas, which is the <laughs> biggest electricity company in Venezuela. And then after that, the government actually took possession of 10 electrical companies from the private sector. So again, this is socialism at work where you're having the government take control and mandate the operation of government-controlled means of production. And it didn't take much time for the electrical sector to be in crisis after being under socialist management because just two years after that, in 2009, Venezuela was in a massive energy crisis with constant energy outages. And we're talking about six massive power outages in the span of 2007 to 2009. That was back then, and that's not even going into last year. If you'll remember, for any of my listeners who follow me on Instagram, I spoke about this ad nauseum because last year, Venezuela was without electricity for more than six entire days. Imagine that, 144 hours without electricity. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine how hospitals and clinics were doing during this time, right? Yeah, um, talking about the power, my friend tells me, she does every day this happens every day she doesn't have power from 7 p.m to like 10 11 p.m this is an everyday thing she doesn't have power for four or three hours so just imagine if you have food on on your freezer or something like that those things are gonna go bad so it's worse because Venezuelans don't have the money to to buy food they don't have power and then whatever they have goes bad so where do they get the money to go and buy, you know, chicken. For example, if that happened to us in here, like one day, at least we have the money to go and we, we have the resources. We have supermarkets where we can go and get whatever we want, right? But in Venezuela, that doesn't happen. That's not a thing in Venezuela. And it's not just that. Maybe they have the food, mm-hmm. but what about entertainment? What if they want to watch TV? Yeah. Direct TV no longer functions in Venezuela, yeah, not just RCTV. But up to 2017, you had over 60 media outlets, including TV channels and radio, that were closed by this revolution. Yeah, um, that and it, it's, it's just amazing. People 
don't even know what's happening and all over them. Like we probably know more things that they know when they're in Venezuela. Because that's the other thing. The people in Venezuela, if they want to say something, they use social media. That's how we find out what's happening in Venezuela. Because of like, for example, my friends that they go to the UCB, Universidad Central de Venezuela. Um, when something happens, they post it and that's how we know what's happening in Venezuela. Because we don't know anything. We don't we don't know what's happening there. And the same with them. They don't even know what's happening there in their country. And even if they want to post about it, it's a difficult task altogether because of the internet speeds. We were just mm-hmm. talking about this before recording that the internet speeds in Venezuela are the slowest in the entire hemisphere, worse than Cuba now. Yeah, every time I talk to my friends, like I'm talking to you right now and you will answer me right away. They answer me like five, ten minutes later like in, in in a call so like i'm just waiting you know to hear the answer or something it's horrible it's terrible and i really do feel for people who maybe didn't have that opportunity to leave when they got the chance yeah. in your case though maria tell me about if you remember maybe what was that point in which you decided or maybe saw a red flag that point in which you said hey i can't do this anymore i've got to get out of here so I remember when I was 14, um, so my mom used to work in, in politics in, in where we live in Venezuela. So I kind of like started, you know, like knowing about what politics was like. So my mom started when I was like probably 10. So, I mean, you're 10 years old. You don't know anything about politics. But then I remember at 14, I told my mom, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to do political science. But I kind of like started seeing how politicians will go from supporting the government to not supporting the government and things like that so I was always wondering like why what's what's actually happening so I knew that you know Travis wasn't doing really good things and stuff like that so I I remember talking to my dad I said that maybe I want to go to United States to go to school you know maybe this is probably better for me and actually from my classroom I'm the only one who left the country So when I was 16, I started doing campaigns against the government and stuff like that. And I remember the first one was Chavez and Enrique Capriles Radonsky. Um, I remember we lost. And then the second one was with Maduro and Capriles. So I thought, well, maybe we have a chance here. You know, maybe we 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 are going to win. Maybe I can stay here. So I remember we lost again. And then I was like, well, there is nothing else for me to be here. Like, I, there is nothing left. I did what I could to support my country, to fight for my country, but there's there's just nothing left. So I remember after graduation, high school graduation, month after I came to the United States, and I remember telling my mom, I'm just going to go to study English, and then I will be back. But then once I got here and months went by, I called my mom. I told her, hey, the things I have in here, I don't have them in Venezuela. I'm free. I have freedom. I don't have to worry about a guy coming on a bicycle to rob me because that doesn't happen. Um, I don't have to worry about not going out because I'm scared. I don't have to worry about going to the supermarket and not finding food. One of the things that I was I was in shock because when I came to the United States and I went to the first time to the supermarket, there were you know like there were so many things. And in Venezuela, you don't have this thing. In Venezuela, I have to do lines with my mom to be able to go to a supermarket. And the thing was, you could only go to a supermarket once a week. Um, so my ID in Venezuela ends in number nine. That means whoever ends in number eight or nine, they go to supermarkets on Fridays. 
So I remember going with my mom because my mom's ID ended in A. So we could go the same day. So I remember when we were getting closer, the people that were for the supermarket came out and said, I am so sorry, but there is no, nothing left. There is no food left. And we went to another supermarket and there was nothing left again. So it was hard because in Venezuela, when I was a kid, going to the supermarket was actually one of my favorite things because I remember I would go with my brother and my sister and then my mom would buy each of us a box of cereal or favorite one. And then there was a point that my mom was like, I'm sorry, but we cannot buy three different uh, cereals. We can only buy one or even we cannot even buy any because we don't have the money. And then coming here and seeing so many different cereals, so many different things that I wasn't able to have in Venezuela. I knew I I was going to have a better life here. And from here, I could probably support my country, could probably do something for Venezuela because being in Venezuela, it is really sad, but being in Venezuela, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to do something for my country. Unless in here, I can talk to people. I can tell them what's actually happening, that I can tell them my story and they can sympathize. They can actually get the knowledge and probably do something. But in Venezuela, it's it's so hard. I feel bad for my friends that are still in there, my friends that go to school there. I had a friend that the moment that he was going to um, pay for his school semester, um, he, he was like, if I pay for my school, that means I don't have money to go grocery shopping. So he didn't pay for his school semester. He went, bought himself food and then started working. And then another friend was like, I cannot go more to school. I need to work to be able to eat. And that happened to my sister, actually. Um, she was um, going to private school. She wanted to do law. And then she told me, for example, uh, the first semester was $100. Well, the second semester went to $300. So just imagine that once, it, it's like if you were going to school here and then your first semester was 5000 and then the second was 10000 Isn't that insane? It's crazy. It is insane. That's another aspect that unfortunately a lot of people are not aware of. The The price control of this socialist revolution in Venezuela made the problem even worse. Um, I've heard stories, even from my own relatives back in Venezuela, of people going to supermarkets and literally within not even a day, within hours, the price will increase. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's like if you were going to the supermarket in here and then you want to get a chocolate or, you know, things like that. And it's two dollars. And then you go the next hour to buy the same thing. It's ten dollars. That's insane. And, you know, the other thing is gas. Um, Venezuela, they're just going through so much right now with, with the situation with gas. Um, my grandma was sick probably few weeks ago and then they couldn't take her to the doctor because they couldn't find gas to get in their cars and if they found it it was so expensive so at the end my aunt bought some and and you know she could take her to the doctor and then when they got to the hospital there was no doctor to see her can you imagine that there is not a doctor to see a patient well i can believe it as a venezuelan i can absolutely well yeah you can my listeners exactly Yeah, it's just insane, you know, and it, you know, the thing that you, you don't know what's happening with you and, and you need to see a doctor, you need to know if you're okay or something's really happening to you and no one can tell. And that's another really important point that, um, that you made that I'm just going to emphasize, Maria, for the listeners. It's very important that people understand that, yes, we are a petro state, 
because Venezuela does have the world's largest number of oil reserves, more so than mm -hmm. Qatar, Saudi yep. Arabia. But imagine we've gotten to a point where the oil industry has collapsed to such a degree that the country has run out of gasoline effectively. And why did that happen? I know it's a buzzword, but it's so applicable to our situation. Socialism. Mm -hmm. I could go on all day mentioning how many companies Chavez expropriated. For many hours. Yeah. Not just companies, but lanes, people's farms and stuff like that. Like, just imagine that you have a farm, then Chavez comes and he's like, uh, what is this? Oh, this is my farm. Oh, well, I'm going to take it. It's going to be for the government now, for the people. Nothing was ever for the people. It was never. Don't ever believe someone that tells you they're doing something for you because that's, that's not how it is. Um, and one of the things that you just mentioned before about Saudi Arabia, Venezuela used to be the richest country. It, it, used, to, it used to have more money than Saudi Arabia. It used to be richer than Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Just imagine that. And now Venezuela is one of the poorest countries. So just imagine that in 1950, Venezuela was one of the, the richest countries in South America. Yeah, all the way leading up into the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And for that, you know, you fast track that to as early as 2018, Venezuela was suffering an annual inflation of over 1.3 million percent. Mm -hmm. Those are numbers that keep growing more and more. Yeah. So do you think about that in tandem with these expropriations? What was the result of all of that expropriation? Lack of funds, lack of payments, lack of maintenance, and lack of production. Because yeah. Chavez knew literally nothing of the business and he mismanaged the oil industry entirely. And so the expropriation led PDVSA to the brink of bankruptcy mm -hmm. that it finds itself in today and a collapse, the result of which now is leading them to have to borrow gasoline from Iran. Yeah, and, and then one of the things about um, talking about PDVSA, so as I mentioned before, my grandparents used to work for PDVSA. And Chavez, the government will tell their workers or the people that was used to work for them, if you don't vote for me, I'm going to find out. And then I'm going to take all of your benefits. So just imagine telling a 60-some years old uh, grandparents that if you don't vote for them, that little money that they're giving you from your retirement, something that you have worked so hard in your life, they're going to take all of that away, your health care, everything. You know, they think about what am I going to eat, how I'm going to support myself. And, you know, many people are going to disagree with me, but I don't blame them. They're old. They don't have any other way to support themselves. You know, before I probably, when, when I was a kid, when I was doing campaigns in Venezuela, I remember telling grandma, why well, you keep voting for him? And she will tell me, he will take my benefits. You know, she was scared. And now that I'm older, I kind of understand things better. I feel so bad that I have, I told her those kind of things. I, I, I feel bad that they have to go through that. So the only thing that I can do is just work hard to be able to help them, you know. I don't blame them. I know there are so many people that are going to come after me, so many people that might not think the same. But, you know, when it's happening in your family, you kind of think about how you can help them instead of blaming them. I don't blame Venezuelans that voted for Chavez anymore. I don't blame them. I'm just trying to find a way to help my people because if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. So I think it right now in Venezuela, it's just the time to find a way to help our people instead of blaming them. I, I mean, we're not going to go anywhere with that. I uh, know. I agree 100%. On the one hand, you understand what you're voting for. You understand what you're supporting. Yeah. But at the same time, once the government has become the sole 
source for any beneficiary, you have no choice. And so that's why people are suckered into believing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't even say suckered. They're, um, to put it bluntly, psychologically conditioned to accept this bare minimum as the gold mm-hmm. standard. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit more about, um, you know, about the clap boxes, right? <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. That is a box that supposedly helps Venezuela. Like it's a box with a bunch of food that apparently support, you know, to help Venezuelans. But it's just the worst food that you can have ever eaten in your life. Venezuelans are are dying from starvation. Rather eat, I don't know, rocks than eat that box. That's how bad it is. So it's terrible, th- yeah. That's that's the other thing about the government. That's how they get people. They will actually I was talking to one of my friends about this uh, a few days ago. The government will go to your house, bring you bo- a box full of food, and that's how they're trying to get people to vote for them. But just so you know, it's not the people that live in the cities, the people that live in the barrios, the people that are like, you know, they're they're not educated. So they will bring them a box full of food and you know, yeah. Here's my bow. I'm going to keep voting for you because you're helping me. And one of the things that Chavez did, the first thing that Chavez did as soon as he got in the power, and as I said it before, Chavez said that Venezuela will never be like Cuba. And he said that if we didn't want him in the power, he was going to get out. But what what ha- what did Chavez do? He changed the constitution. He went from, I believe, in Venezuela, you, you could only be president for four or five years. I believe five, right? Or four. I don't well, remember. Whatever the case, uh, maybe I think what you were going to mention is he changed it so that he could be reelected for life, right? Exactly. So he could stay forever. Then he changed it to six years. And then now Chavez died in 20. So Chavez died uh, seven years ago. So, yeah, he died seven years ago. He was in power for seven years. And now we have Maduro who has been in power for seven years. And we know he has never gotten elected, but the people that count the vote is with the government. So they obviously will rather have him there forever than have someone that's actually for the people. Absolutely. And they are suckered in, like you said. These um, these clap boxes, I, I have to say, they've been described by human rights groups, not just in Venezuela, but internationally as a form of food discrimination. It exacerbates social unrest because, again, you psychologically condition these people into believing that you are their savior, but the food itself, the contents in these boxes themselves, they're packed up, they're organized by the military, I have to add, like almost every single political and economic institution in the country, very similar to North Korea, but I digress. So these <laughs> boxes themselves, they contain disgustingly, uh, or food that's disgustingly devoid of the proper amount of adequate nutrients necessary to sustain a healthy lifestyle or to basically survive. So Venezuelans are forced to subsist on these boxes, the contents of which lack the proper protein to, to basically survive without losing weight, but they have more than twice the amount of carbs or carbohydrates in, in the contents of food. And there have been incidents of these boxes being seized by authorities in uh, neighboring countries like Colombia, where these boxes are beetle infested, where you have beetles inside the boxes because the the government, what they do is they have exclusive uh, contracting rights where they essentially contract distributors to issue these boxes or to manufacture these boxes from overseas because you know that Venezuela can't do it itself anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you have these shell companies that don't actually do anything and they're the ones responsible for manufacturing, 
producing the food that an entire populace is going to eat or the majority of its lower class citizenry, then what would you expect? You're going to get food of that sort of quality. And I believe um, they're coming from Africa, right? These things are coming from Africa, like one of the poorest countries. And and then that was the other thing about the government, that the government will always help other countries before they help their own country. Um they will send so many, I don't, I don't know if you ever heard of that, but they will take like airplanes full of food to Cuba and Bolivia and they have Venezuelans starving. Um, I was actually, had a thing on social media. This guy came, he commented on one of my fans about Venezuelan stuff. And then he said, how could you say something like that about the only country is actually helping with the coronavirus vaccine? I was like, how can you tell me that the Venezuelan government it's helping us with the coronavirus vaccine when they cannot even help their own people. That's outrageous. On huh? what grounds would he be able to prove such a? I, I, I'm speechless. Yeah, <laughs> How I, could I, he prove I, such a thing? Yeah, and then the thing that Venezuela is not socialist. Uh, Venezuela is capitalist. I was like, oh God, I, I, I don't. You know, sometimes I, I don't even have anything to tell these people. And the only thing I can say is like, okay, um, give me your information. Okay? Let me get you a ticket to Venezuela and stay there forever. And they told me that Venezuela is not socialist after that. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a perfect example of something that I was uh, with the last interview that I did the other day. If you say a lie enough times, you start to believe it. So that's mm-hmm. what's effectively been going on with this Venezuela crisis where Really, the the arbiters of truth in this space are people who are liars, liars who, for whatever reason, are able to brainwash people into believing, despite everything that we've said today in our interview, the facts, your personal background, your story, they still believe this sort of thing. And that's why it's so important for people like you and I who have experienced this sort of thing or seen it firsthand to let the world know the reality of the situation because it, it, it is a daunting task. It's not fun. But because it's so multidimensional and layer, you know, we're talking about 20 years of damage mm-hmm. having been done to the country. So what can you do? Yeah, it's, it's not just you are going hungry, that you cannot go to a supermarket and find food like we're doing here. Like when the coronavirus thing, it, it, when everyone just went into quarantine i remember going to a supermarket and seeing like empty shelves i was like oh please no this is not happening here but i I understood that it was because you know people were panicking and stuff like that but i was like okay this brings flashbacks and i don't like it so just imagine you went to a supermarket and you couldn't find toilet paper or water in venezuela you might not find toilet paper for weeks you might not get water for weeks so the fact that people are going hungry, people cannot defend themselves because that's other thing. In Venezuela, you don't have, like we do in the United States, the Second Amendment. The government are the only one, the government and the criminals are the only ones that have guns. But the criminals work for the government, just so that way they can stay in power and they can do all of the things they do. And just so imagine, you're going to give up to your rights to bear arms. You're not going to be able to eat the way that you have always done uh, and this things. Just so imagine starvation and not defending yourself. The worst. Yeah, it's it's really a lose lose situation. And for my listeners, I want to do a little bit of an explanation of what she had just mentioned as far as these pro regime criminals. You're referring to the colectivos, am I not mistaken? 
Yeah, just like Antifa. <laughs> yeah, very, very similar because they both share this far leftist ideology of carrying out vigilante justice to advance their own particular interests. So in the case of the Colectivos, what they would do is they would try and keep or restore social order on behalf of the Bolivarian revolution. Mm -hmm. And what they would do is they would go into these poor neighborhoods because, again, the poorest neighborhoods are always the hardest hit because they understand that these are the ones that would be most vulnerable. And they were the ones who were vetted by the government and really by, um, by Chavez himself and Maduro by extension to carry out vigilante justice and to silence anybody who doesn't go with uh, strict measures like quarantine or before that strict measures like government rations yes. or rationing electricity. I don't know if you heard, but um, just when they went to quarantine, um, they went to, uh, I believe it was in Petare. I don't remember exactly the name. And if someone knows, please let me know. I, I, I think it was Petare or something like that. But the colectivos uh, were over there. And then there were three neighbors playing domino outside. I mean, one of their them houses. The colectivos killed them because they were breaking quarantine. And let's not go that far. They come at, they go after the students when they're protesting against the government. They went, when I was in Venezuela and was doing a campaign against the government, they went after us so many times. I was just like, I better run because they will come after me. They will take me. They will hurt me. And they hurt so many of my friends. And, uh, you know, when you cannot defend yourself, it, it's a thing. It, it's really hard because when you know that the criminals are the only ones allowed to have guns, they will come after you and there's nothing you can do. There is literally nothing you can do to defend yourself, to defend your family. You just have to do whatever they say. Right. You ask anybody in Venezuela, and they're well known for doing that sort of thing, you know, carrying out extrajudicial killings, kidnapping. Mm -hmm. So when you have those sorts of people with such extreme ideologies carrying out justice in a manner that they see most fit, then at the end of the day, no one is safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's just a bad thing that you are not safe in your own country. Um, a friend two years ago, I have said this so many times, but someone killed her. I, I don't know if, if they're you know, in jail or if they're, they're going to pay for what they did to her. Um, the cops don't even know if they were going to kidnap her or they, they wanted to rob her. They, they don't know. Um, they killed her. They shot her six times. Another friend, um, he had just bought a motorcycle. And the collectivos came after him and they, they told him, hey, we want, we want you to give us the motorcycle. Nothing's going to happen. He refused to that. They killed him. Um, it, 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 it's just, you know, that you don't feel safe. in your, Even in your house, you don't feel safe in your house. Um, my, my sister, um, she had to stay so many times by herself at home. And you know, just to know that your sister is texting you, hey, well, I'm here by myself. Hopefully, no hopefully nothing happens because it doesn't matter where you leave. You are not safe. Yeah, that's really, really sad. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon. I I've heard that story almost too many times, regardless of what area of Venezuela you live in. You know, before there were pockets that might have been less vulnerable or less susceptible to these incidents of violence, but no more. Mm hmm. You know, even the National Guard, it's, it's with the government. Um, this is way different than what we're talking about, but my grandparents have a farm. And I remember they bought it in 2000. I was only four years old. And by that 
time, they bought it for 1 million bolivares. 1 million bolivares 20 years ago was a lot of money. So they bought their farms, and the farms just literally a block away from one of the base of the National Guard. I remember um, my grandfather was so nice to them. He would always bring them food, invite them to eat at the farms, you know, those kind of things. And they were really nice until, like, you know, everything went so corrupt, even the National Guard. Um, when my grandma got the stroke, they have to leave the farm and go to their house. And then my grandfather talked to the National Guard, hey, we're leaving, please keep an eye on my farm. Well, they stole everything, everything they had, their horses, like every single thing they had. They killed our horses and they sold the meat. Wow. How can you do that? Wow. Like, so you cannot trust anyone in Venezuela. And I'm telling you, this National Guard, they were, well, you know, the National Guard that is in power right now, it's way different to the one that was 10 years ago, 15 years sure. ago. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and now these kids, they just took that as a chance to get in our land, steal everything from us and, and kill our horses and sell the meat. Are you a human being? How, how can you kill a horse? And then, it, it, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's insane what's happening in Venezuela. People are going home, like people are starving and this is what's happening. This is what they're doing. My grandparents' neighbors, they went in and they stole fence. So it, there is no respect. There is there's not that family thing that used to be in Venezuela anymore. Yeah. What a, what a horrible story. And it's very reflective or emblematic of some of the other stories I've heard of not just that sort of livestock being killed, but also rabbits. And in fact, actually yesterday I was at a bar with a couple of friends of mine and it was a restaurant, by the way, for all of my casual listeners who understand that we're in quarantine and there, there are restrictions <laughs> in place, just a disclaimer. It was a restaurant that just happened to have a bar inside it. Just but that's beside the point. Yes, exactly. Just, just happened. casually happened to have it. Exactly. But I digress. Um, one of the people that was there that was introduced to asked me, oh, so you're from Venezuela. I heard things are really bad over there. I heard you guys are eating rabbits over there. And oh, wow. yeah, I, I, I know it wasn't meant as an insult, but yeah. people have to understand that it really is as bad as it sounds and oftentimes mm-hmm. even worse. So not to belabor a point, but Again, it's extremely important. It's imperative that those who can speak out do so because it's not just that history has a tendency to revise itself if not heeded or in, in its warnings, but also this idea that it can't be exported, the ideology can't be exported overseas. You see what happened with the Soviet Union. The ideas of the Soviet Union went well beyond its borders into China, into Laos, into Cambodia into Cuba, into Venezuela, into Nicaragua. So the idea that it can't be infiltrated into more westernized democracies is, it's false because we're seeing it today. Yeah, Bernie Sanders said that red lines were good. No, they're not. You know, when you have to wake up at three in the morning to do a line just to get in the supermarket, when you can go any time of the day you want, whenever you want, and, and then possibly, oh, there is no more food left. You know, you know what words to hear that there is no more food left in a supermarket that is supposed to have food forever. So let's not go that far. Bernie Sanders is trying to do this to your country. You guys, wake up. And not just him. Also. Yeah, AOC. Yes. <laughs> AOC. <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. And it's unfortunate because 
they're so entrenched in their beliefs that I think it's too late to get to them. But it's not too late to get to the generations that you and your organization are trying to get to, the millennials and Gen Z. So one of the final things that I wanted to ask you, Mafet, is how do you continue to learn with this organization in order to stay on top of things within your role and to get people to not only understand the socialist ideology, but also to maybe be interested in participating in what you guys are doing as an initiative as a whole? So um, one of the things that sadly we have to talk about our story because if we don't, then something might happen in here. So one of the things that we just talk about our story, we, we tell them, hey, this is why I don't believe in socialism. And we prove them, we give them facts, we, we bring them history and all the things that have happened. Um, one of the things just to speak from the heart, to be honest and you know try to get these people to change their minds somehow. I know that they will always say, oh, Venezuela is not socialist, it's just capitalism. No, let me tell you the same things that Bernie Sanders. To me, Bernie Sanders is just Chavez. He's just Chavez, but an American. That, that's just what he is. But one of the things is always talk to people, always speak up. Um, I was silenced. I did not want to talk about it because I, I was scared that something was going to happen to my family until I found out that there were Americans that would love to have socialism. I was like, okay, now I think it's my time to say something because if I don't say something, then I'm going to lose my home too, as well as so many other people are going to lose their home too. So one of the things that we do in, 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 in jazz is always proven, giving facts, always talking about it, always showing uh, information. Always, um, we have so many of our Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, and uh, getting a, a selfie video and talking about why they hate socialism, why they don't like socialism, why socialism is so good. It's not just because he has taken everything away from us, because I guess that's not enough for people, but it's just because it's not just a good political uh, system. No, it absolutely is not. And it's a challenge that you have with your specific role, but I'm confident that with the right intellectual ammunition, as you say, <laughs> we will prevail. Like we say in Venezuela, el que calla otorga. Right, that's true. Silence is consent, and we cannot let this sort of ideology prevail. Yeah, it's, it's just the worst thing. It's just the worst thing to to be silenced. But you know, again, it was it's because we're scared that something's going to happen to our family. But we have to do something. We have to do something, and somehow, maybe with with our stories, it's going to get to someone, and that someone's going to help us out and do something for the country, which is what we want to do. We want to be able to go back home and see our family. You know go back home and maybe stay there. I don't know, but we just want to go back home somehow. Yeah. And I think with the right people and the right message, we will get there. So let me ask you this as a final question. If people want to know more about you, Mafir, about your story and about the organization, tell our listeners where they can find you. What's your page? What's your social media handle and the handle of the organization? So the handle of the organization is Yes America. Um, you can find them in Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Mine's are Twitter is Maria F. Bello 96. Instagram is Maffer, B as in boy, S52. And then Facebook, Maria Fernanda Bello. Okay, perfect. Yes, please reach out to her if you have any questions. I'm sure she'll be more than happy to talk to any of you guys who might be curious, want to know a little bit more about her story and what sort of lessons can be taken or drawn away from her experience. 
So with that, I really want to thank you, Mafer. Uh, oh, no, thank you. Very, very productive conversation. And I really hope you guys came out today and learned something. So again, if you have information, Mafer, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning into the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. I'll see you all in the next one.